you join me in prayer? And so, Father, we do come before you and beseech you as we join with a hymn writer over a hundred years ago who wrote those words and reminded us to come and to ask for your strength and your spirit to help us to endure. And Lord, we need that. We need to depend on you and not our own strength. And so God, I pray as we come under your word this morning that it would do that. It would change the way we think and change what we're placing our anchor and our trust in. That it would cause us to let go of the things that hurt us and and cast us around and to hold on to you, our rock and our Savior. Thank you, God, for the privilege we have of joining together to be under your word now. Lord, may it do its work. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I would ask you to return in your Bibles to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. As Michael said, we're just picking up on our story of Acts. If you're new here, we are studying through the book of Acts, and we're looking at the first eight verses here today. Next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up on the rest of uh, the ministry of Philip there in Samaria and what happened with this guy Simon. And uh, we're going to see the work of the ministry going out into the world. And then, at the end of the sermon, we're going to have a special conclusion. And that special conclusion to the sermon is going to be Ambria Minor talking about the ministry that's going on in India. And, uh, and that, yes, that is worth it. Thank you, Lynn. You're right. That's worth of an applause. She's going to come up and she's going to share. And it's actually going to be just a, a living testimony of the scattering that should be going on, of the work of the gospel going out and somebody from our own midst who, who uh, not only uh, spent a year in India, but Lord willing is going to go back. And so, um, so that's next week. But this week we are looking here in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. And uh, whenever I read this passage, uh, I actually think of, uh, of a missionary, Elizabeth Elliot. Many of you know the story of Elizabeth and Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. And, and, uh, and of course... In the 1950s, her husband was killed with uh, four other missionaries in Ecuador. And, uh, and I oftentimes think about her in, in this sort of way when I, when I read this passage. I think about the fact that here she was in her late 20s, in the 1950s, in, in from her perspective, the middle of nowhere, right, in this tribal setting, and uh, just a handful of missionaries with her, and uh, one child, little, little, little baby, and all of a sudden, her husband is murdered. And now she's alone. I mean, she's got her missionary friends, but her, her husband's been killed, and she just has this Jezreel baby. And many of you don't know this part of the story. Maybe some of you do. But after uh, those, those five guys were killed, there was a lot of fear among the missionaries. And the fear was is that the warriors of the different tribes were going to try to kill the missionaries. And they did. They actually tried for several years, almost five years, the different tribes would try to kill these missionaries. The reason why is in that culture, revenge killing is just a normal way of life, right? So you, you, you kill somebody in my family, I go and kill somebody in your family. It's just the way people thought. And so those missionaries thought, or the, I mean the tribals, people thought the missionaries are going to get guns, and they have guns, and they're going to get the, the military behind them, and they're going to come in, they're going to wipe us out. So we better get our warriors together to go and kill them. And God miraculously protected them for this five-year period. Now just for a moment, 
We look back at this, you know, 60 years later, and, and, uh, and we say to ourselves, uh, wow, yeah, God protected them. But could you imagine living in that moment? Could you imagine being 28 years old, you got a baby, you're hiding in a hut in the middle of nowhere with people with spears and arrows trying to kill you. That would mark as a low moment in your life, right? Like you would put that down. That's bad. That's a bad moment. And on top of it, you don't know how to get out. You're stuck. You're there. What would you do? How would you define that moment? Now, you fast forward 20 years later. Elizabeth Elliot, writer, written books. She's on the radio. She's encouraged thousands upon thousands of, of people in the church. Would she have had that platform without being huddled down in a hut somewhere, having her husband murdered? No. That moment of that crisis provided the platform that God used for her to have a global ministry. God just didn't want her to be a missionary to one or two tribes in the middle of Ecuador. God wanted her to be a missionary to the world. But his path was not through Bible college and missionary school, right? It wasn't going to go out and be able to write a doctoral thesis on how to be a missionary to the world. The path was going to be through pain and through suffering, through heartache, through loss, through fear, through worry, through anxiety, through depression. That was the path. It's an interesting path, isn't it? It's one of the paths that we see throughout the book of Acts. The path that God uses to give people the platform is oftentimes a path of pain. It's oftentimes a path of persecution. It's oftentimes a path of suffering. Yet it seems as if that path becomes the path upon which God repositions his children to be doing that which he's called them to do. Probably because the natural instinct of us as human beings is comfort, right? I mean, I would not want to necessarily get up and and say, oh, I, I hope today someone in my family dies a painful death and then someone tries to kill me for the next several years. We don't, we don't, our minds just don't go there. We don't think that way. But it isn't that God is in some kind of, you know, masochistic God where he's just trying to torture people. But the reality is that we live in a fallen world with sin in our own life, surrounded by fallen people in a body that's decaying. That's the world we live in. And that world is going to be a world of pain and suffering and trials for everybody. But yet there's a unique difference because when you're in Christ you get a whole new perspective on trials. Everybody's going through them. We went downtown Sycamore today and stood on the corner and said, are you going through trials? I I bet you everybody, if they were going to be honest, say, yeah. Maybe the trial isn't huge. Maybe it's just a car that broke down. Maybe it is huge. Maybe there's some major issue going on. Everybody's going through something. But the uniqueness is that when we are in Christ, we can begin to see something very, very amazing. And what we can see when we're in Christ is that God actually uses the trials that I'm going to go through. No matter what, whether I'm in Christ or not, I'm going to go through trials. But God can use and will use those trials 
to position me to have the impact that he's designed for me to have. So instead of Elizabeth Elliot just going through life depressed that her husband was killed and depressed that people wanted to kill her and depressed that her plans and her agenda for her life when she was 28 completely got radically transformed in an instant. It wasn't just that she just stopped at that moment and that becomes the defining moment of her life. Well, when I was 28, God just stopped everything and now it all stinks. That wasn't what it was. She recognized that God was repositioning her and using that trial to advance his kingdom through her. That is the key of what we're going to see in Acts 8 here. That the worst trials that could come upon these people, God was using it. I was thinking as we were singing that song, A Mighty Fortress, and that line really struck me this morning. The body they may kill. You know, when Luther wrote that, he actually meant that. He actually knew that trusting in Christ alone for your salvation could cost you your life. He actually was writing that in the song. Could you imagine singing that? When those people were singing, I can't imagine people weren't crying when they were singing that song. It is a possibility that today could be our last day on earth because we are professing our faith in Christ. But God's truth will abide and his kingdom will last forever. You see, that's that perspective we're talking about. So what we're going to see today is we're going to see this persecution come upon the church. We're going to see how they preach the word. But there's two things really to see here. First is what I think is Luke's overall point. God uses all things to advance his kingdom. Right? That's Luke's point. He's using everything. But the application, I'll give it to you right now, the application for us as a church, and I think it's a timely application for our church, is this. What you live for, the kingdom that you live for, determines how you endure If you live for your own kingdom and your own agenda and your own perception of what you wanted your life to be, I guarantee to you that trials will disrupt you every step of the way. If you live for the kingdom of God, then you begin to see trials as that which is unleashing you. Unleashing you into the advancement of the kingdom. And hence, a guy like Martin Luther can write down, they might kill me, but it doesn't matter because God's kingdom's forever. He's writing that. He means that. He knows that. He has stood on trial facing the death penalty for his faith in Christ. That's the reality. The kingdom you live for determines how well you endure. So let's see this today. Let's look at the persecution. Look at verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. That's referring to Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Okay, so now we see Saul. He approves of this execution. Here's what that means. That that, that line is not just a little transition line. It's letting us know that Saul, who was a very devout Jew believed that killing Stephen was the right thing. He believed it. Now Saul is the guy who later becomes Paul, who becomes the missionary and the focus of most of the book of Acts. But right now, he's a, he's a devout Jew. He's a Pharisee. 
And uh, he believes that killing Stephen was the right thing. Why would he believe killing Stephen is the right thing? Well, because, first of all, Stephen was a Greek-speaking Jew, so he's a Hellenist, so he's already looked down upon. He's not a pure Jew. Second, Stephen's standing up there saying, your theology's all garbage. There's a bunch of bad theology. And not only that, you're in disobedience to the law of Moses. And so this guy's saying, how in the world can you tell me my theology's bad, that I'm disobeying the law of Moses? Here you are. You're already just a Greek-speaking Jew. You're not even a true Hebrew Jew. And so he approved of going after him. And, when, and, and, and the idea we're going to see in a minute here is that not only did he go after just Stephen, but what we're going to see is that Saul went after every Greek-speaking Jew who had faith in Christ. This is the focus of the attack, as we're going to see in a minute. The focus was on the Hellenists. Talked about them last week, just the Greek-speaking Jews that had trusted Christ. And no one got in their way. No one blocked it. And we'll see why in a little bit. But he's going after them. And as he's going after them, notice what it says. A great persecution against the church, right, arose. A great persecution. I mean, persecution's bad by itself. It's a bad word. You put great in front of it. I mean, that's like really bad. So that's the picture. I know it's kind of an obvious no-duh point, but, but don't let the, those little descriptors you know, pass you by there. It was a horrible persecution. We're going to see what that persecution was like, but the first thing Luke's trying to tell us is that it was horrible. It was so bad that it caused these people to leave. Apostles stayed because they actually weren't the focal point of this persecution. There was a Hellenist, as we'll see in a little bit. They come after him. Now, some have asked, did the apostles do something wrong by staying? You know, a lot of people debate this. I I think right now God was not scattering them. We'll see as the story unfolds. We got to send the Greek-speaking Jews out first because the first region God wanted them to go to was Samaria, where the half-breeds were. The Jews still had a little prejudice against them. They didn't like the Samaritans. But these Hellenist Christians... They could be missionaries there. And so this is just a little bit of God being understanding how to move the right person at the right time. So he sends them out. Later, the apostles, except one of them, will all leave Jerusalem and go to different places. But for now, he's sending out the Hellenists. Now look at verse 2. Notice how the story unfolds. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. Now why is that there? Well, you have to understand something. It was Stephen's sermon that precipitated this, right? Stephen preaches against them. He says he sees God. They come in. They kill him. But I want you, the one thing I just want you to observe here, the church didn't blame Stephen for this, right? They didn't blame Stephen for it. And as, as maybe subtle as this observation is, they understood that persecution was going to be the path. In our culture, we don't oftentimes think about persecution as being the path. We think about persecution as pain as the thing to which we are supposed to avoid. So if I stood up here and preached a message that could get 50% of you arrested today, think about that for a moment. In in all reality, if, if if, if somebody said, hey, if you preach this passage you know, in its context today, we're going to arrest 50% of your church. We're going to drag them out, women, children, the whole bit. We're going to throw them in jail. We're going to beat them while they're in there. It's going to be a horrible thing. Kids are going to be screaming. Horrible things are going to happen. And I now had to decide, will I preach that message tomorrow? 
knowing that 50% of you would get arrested, knowing that possibly some of you guys, your wives, might be dragged out, being you know, mishandled right in front of your eyes and thrown in prison. Okay, if I preach that message, would you celebrate me? Would you celebrate it? Would you say, man, man, Steve's faithful. I know I lost my children today because of it. Or would you say, Steve, dial it back a little bit. You know, don't wear a microphone. You know, Maybe we could just have little house groups and you could just go from house to house to house and we could kind of do it privately. Would you celebrate? I mean, here's the reality of the situation. Devout men, men that trusted Christ, they buried him and they cried over him. They didn't blame him. This is what Luke's trying to show. They, they, they celebrated his life and mourned his death. And they aligned with him publicly. This is the picture here. They stood with him. In that day, who you stood with determined how you were going to be treated. And they stood with him. It's a powerful picture. But notice verse 3. Here's this, the reality. The devout men are mourning the death of Stephen. And verse 3 gives us the contrast. But Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. You can't let those words really pass you by there. He's ravaging, ravaging the church. He is going after the people, not the leadership. Not going after Peter and John. It's going after the people. Specifically, as we're going to see, the Hellenists. He's going after them. And literally breaking into their homes and doing something that was normally not done, arresting the women. They didn't normally arrest the women unless the woman was caught in adultery. Pretty much kind of left them alone. So they're dragging the women out. They're dragging the men out. And the picture here you get is, you know, when he says he dragged off men and women, it's a violent arrest is the picture. This is a whole set of violence going on. Like, it's just, it's not like kind of, you know, them coming in and saying, you know, put your hands up against the wall and reading you your Miranda rights and handcuffing you and gently putting you in the car and protecting your head so you don't hit it on the top of the car. It's not that. It's you go in the house, you're dragging them down. People are screaming. You got a picture, children screaming and, 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 and women being pulled out of their, the arms of their husbands. It's that kind of violent picture. So that's what Luke's trying to show you. This is a horrible moment. This is the persecution that's going on. It's a powerful moment. And you start thinking about that. You know, I think about that moment of what my response would be. Now, this is like an easy guilt question, isn't it? I could get you pretty easy with this question. How would you respond to that? Okay, now I'm going to ask you that question, but not as a good pastoral guilt moment. Right? It's not about that. It's about exposing something in all of us. How would I respond to that? Being in a situation like that, what would I th- how would I think, what kingdom am I living for? Whose kingdom am I trying to build? Whose image am I trying to protect? My own or Christ's? Whose wealth am I trying to invest in? My own or the kingdom of God? You know, What is it that I'm building? What do I spend my day thinking about? What makes me angry or afraid shows me the kingdom I'm living for. That's what this moment's about. What kingdom are they living for? This is a violent moment. 
And what we're going to see now is how the church responded, which is our second point, very simple, the preaching. Notice verse 4, very simple point. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now I believe there's an interesting little word play going on here, one you might not pick up, but let me give it to you here in verse 4. It says, now those who were scattered. Most of the translations use this word scattered. And there's a reason why. It's a very important little word, and I want to drill down. You know, I don't like to always drill down a lot of Greek words, but this is one kind of worth drilling down on because there's uh, interesting wordplay here. There are two words for scatter. One particular word for scatter means to scatter something so that it dissipates, like tossing, you know, ashes on the ocean type thing. It's just all going to dissipate or like, you know, blowing dandelions or whatever. It's like, you know, something just dissipates, goes away. There's a second word for scatter, and it's the word that means to, 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 to plant. To plant. Casting a seed. It means to plant something. And it's an interesting word play. Saul is trying to scatter the church. He's trying to dissipate it. He's trying to put such pressure upon these Hellenists that they would just keep silent because their arguments are deconstructing the arguments of the age, of, of their religion. These guys are brilliant theologians, and they're deconstructing this, and they're trying to scatter it. But here's what Luke tells us. Yeah, they got scattered, but they didn't get scattered to be dissipated. <laughs> they got planted. God used this trial to reposition them and to plant them in the place he wanted them to go, which was Judea and Samaria. He said, I want you to be a witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the world. That's simple. It's what I want you to do. The hard part is we don't really believe that, right? Our kind of thing is, yeah, we're here. Boom, we just kind of live here. And unless something happens, we stay here, right? The natural tendency of us is to do nothing unless pressure gets put upon us. So pressure comes on, and now they're scattered. And notice what it says. They were preaching the word. Let me explain this to you. You might read that and think they're doing what I'm doing right now. That they got a pulpit and a stage and a band. The band played five songs, and then they stood up and said, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel. That isn't what they did. Preaching the word basically means this. It means they took their Old Testament, and they showed them Jesus in it. They showed them how Christ fulfilled this whole thing. And so they sat down and they said, listen, we're going to show you in Genesis 3.15 how that one who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Well, that's the Messiah. It's Jesus. And and we're going to show you the promised seed of Abraham. Well, that's Jesus. Moses talked about this one who was going to come, this prophet. Listen to this guy. He's going to have the words of truth. That's Jesus. And God told David that this king's going to come and rule on a throne. That's Jesus. God, through the prophet Zechariah, said, this temple's going to be built and this one is going to come in and he's going to provide the sacrifice. That's Jesus. That's what they were doing. They were showing them Jesus. So they went out when they were scattered and they began to use the very word of God and began to tell them about Jesus. Next week, we'll see one example of that with Philip. But that's what's going on. So here's the interesting thing. That trial in their life wasn't necessarily a trial that caused them to say, God isn't true. 
Right? God isn't true. Why would I believe this? If, if God were true, then they wouldn't have been dragging my friends out and throwing them into prison. I wouldn't have had to have left my house and go live in Samaria now. If God were true, this wouldn't have. They weren't thinking that way. They weren't thinking that way. You know, I, my um, doctoral thesis was on suffering. Suffering and uh, God's use of suffering in the world. And one of the things that I noticed when I was studying that and looking at different people who suffered was that two people can go through the same suffering experience, but if one goes through it with a purpose, they endure, while the other one can go through a a, a trial and not endure if he has no purpose. My uncle was a prisoner of war in World War II. He was uh, captured in the Philippines, went through the Bataan Death March, and then take after, so after a long, several-week journey where many of his friends died, they went through a, a battle, they lost the battle, and they were taken on this big march, and, and then um, you know, many of them died, and then he was put on a ship and brought into China, and he spent four years in a prisoner of war camp in China. When he got out, um, he wasn't in good shape, but he ended up living the 80, 1980s or so, quite a while after the war. But, but I remember talking to my uncle about it, and I remember asking him, you know, how, how'd you endure this? I mean, you're in a battle, you lose the battle, you're marched for this long period of time in the heat, then put on a ship, and then put in a prisoner of war camp, and for four years tortured in a prisoner of war camp. I asked my uncle, how did you survive that? He basically came back with an answer like this. He said, you know, we knew that if we could make it to the end, we could wipe out this kind of political system that was trying to take over the world. So we just had to make it to the end. And we knew if we could make it, we'd overcome it. Now, that's not a kingdom purpose in the sense of of Christ and his kingdom, but it shows you that even in the sense of just even on an earthly element, a guy can be tortured for four years and make it to the end. What about those who see the kingdom of God and say, you know what, God? I believe you're going to use all things. I believe you're going to use all things to make your name known. I believe that we can, we can endure this together. These people had that mindset, and as a result, when they were scattered, they weren't running away from God. They were proclaiming God as they were being repositioned. They made his name known. They made Christ known. Powerful. Now notice, we zero in on one guy, Philip. Look at verse 5. Now Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ, right? It just means the Messiah. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them. And many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So Philip is going, and if you remember what Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 says, that when these early leaders of the church went out to preach, God allowed them to do these signs and wonders to prove that what they were saying about Christ was true. 
The very power of God was behind them. Now, why is God just sending Philip? Why is it just these Hellenists that are going out? Because these Hellenists are the ones that are going to be the most open to preaching to the Samaritans because the Samaritans were not liked by people. They were looked down upon. There was a, a prejudice against the Samaritans. They were seen as sell-offs. They were seen as, as even, even, it was a struggle even for, for many Christians to accept Samaritans in their midst. That these people who are so bad and so liberal and so pagan and so perverted God's word could ever be accepted as a brother. Hard. So God sends the first group of missionaries, Greek speakers, who would have a much more sympathy with the Samaritans. He sends them out first. We're going to see next week how God then sent the apostles in, especially Peter, to verify that God is at work. And it was a process they had to go through to accept them because human flesh is very thick at times to God. So they had to see this. But here's what I want you to notice. Just notice the, uh, a little like bookends, what I call. Notice verse 4. What does it say? Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Notice verse 8. So there was much joy in that city. Here's the amazing thing about this. These Samaritans are in bondage to a false religion, to a perverted understanding of the law of God. They worship God incorrectly. They're in bondage. Now these Jews are in Jerusalem. I'm not certain they would have ever thought that those people out there need to be set free from the bondage they're in. Because oftentimes what can happen, I think, to us as Christians is that we can kind of get, our, get everything right and get our, our, our house in order and, and get our theology in order and then just say we're going to ride that train to the rapture. You know, this will be good. we got a good church with good people. Do the right things. This is who we are. This is a great train. I don't want to get off this train. And God's saying, that's not how I want you to ride to the rapture. See, there's people out there that need help that are in bondage. And I'm going to reposition some of you in your pain and your trials. Elizabeth Elliot, the death of your husband, the fear of wondering if you were going to be killed, coming back to the stage, trying to figure out your life, trying to figure out how you're going to raise this child, trying to figure out how you're going to support your family. All of these horrible things that she had to go through was God repositioning her for the work he had designed for her. That's the path that goes on. And thousands of, tens of thousands were set free because of somebody like Elizabeth Elliot. I was thinking about the reality that probably somewhere, and this is probably a fairly accurate number, there are probably 69,000 people in DeKalb County who don't know Christ. That's a fairly accurate number. 69,000 people who don't have joy who are in bondage to horrible situations. It's possible that God is putting some of you through ravaging persecution right now to reposition you, to use you for one of those 69,000 so we could make it whatever 69,000 minus one would be. (laughs) I can't even do that math. 
What would that, that doesn't matter. Somebody tell me what it would be. It's 58,000. <laughs> That's why I went to ministry. <laughs> I couldn't do math. <laughs> I could talk, and that's about it. <laughs> that doesn't help on a math test. But it's possible that one of you in this room, in the midst of your situation where God is ripping you from 100% of your life and might be repositioning you because there is a need for great joy in that neighborhood. There's a need for great joy in that region. This is the kind of stuff that I think Luke wants us to see as we consider the church. And I would tell you this, we're going to go through these trials no matter what, because we live in a fallen world, we exist in a fallen body, and we're surrounded by sinners. One thing we can guarantee is it's going to hurt life. It will hurt. The reality, though, is that we've re-recognized, but God is so powerful that he converts that hurt into bringing freedom to people. Isn't that a great thing? And that's the reality of the situation here. And this is what we see. Now, we're going to see this play out next week in even greater detail. But here's how I want to wrap this up today. The point I want to draw for us. Very simple point. Because we see Luke's thing. He's using everything to carry out his kingdom, but it comes back to this one simple application for us. What I live for determines how I endure. It determines how I endure. What I want you to notice is I'm not saying what I live for determines whether or not I'll go through suffering. That's not the statement. We're all going to go through it. We live in a fallen body, we dwell in a fallen world, and we're surrounded by sinners. Now, with that as a backdrop, how will you endure? Those that say, God, I just want to build your kingdom. I want to build your kingdom. That's what I want to do. I I want you to convert this pain into joy for someone else. Let's start clicking off that 69,000 number and start bringing relief and freedom and joy to people. Let's do that. What a great way to endure. What a great way to go through this trial. I thought about this week. How would I prepare my children if I lived in, in this world? Or Luther's time, <clears throat> excuse me, when they were going through trials? Would I say to my children, listen, we just got to hide. We got to endure. The world's bad. Let's just go kind of dwell in the basin. Or would I say, listen, the body, they may kill but God's kingdom's forever. You're going to die anyway. Somewhere in the next hundred years, you're gone. So here's the reality. What kingdom are we going to build? Are we going to live for building up our own kingdom and our own wealth and our own comfort and our own little commune until the rapture? Or are we going to say, God, well, I'm going to go through it just like everyone else, but use mine to bring joy to others. Use mine to bring freedom to others. Use mine to set the captives free. The only way to do that, though, is we do have to surrender our kingdom to Christ. We do. And I was thinking about how crazy of a sermon this was. Yesterday, I was sitting down thinking, only in this setting could I preach this and not have people go, what in the world are you talking about? Because it sounds kind of weird. But it's so true. 
It is so true. And the people that have impacted us the most, think about the people that have impacted your life, that have made the lasting profound effect on your life. And I guarantee it was somebody who said, God, turn my trial, my pain, into advancing your kingdom so that I could bring joy to others. I guarantee those people would have that mindset if they've impacted your life. And so the challenge and the question for you is this. Last week, whose kingdom were you building? How do you know? What made you angry? What made you bitter? What were the things, the crises that came that threw you off? If you were mad because your agenda was attacked, then you're building the wrong kingdom. And you will not endure. Your trial will overcome you. But if you're saying, God, I want to be all in for your kingdom, man, all in, I want to build it, you will not only endure, you will overcome. And that's why all those songs that Matt picked today were proclaiming that we overcome. We can overcome this trial. And you can stand boldly like those people that impacted our lives, the Corey Tin Booms, the Elizabeth Elliots, the people that stand up and say, man, God, through God, we overcame. And now we're going to try to bring blessings to others. Would you bow your head with me? God repositions us. And God's repositioning you. And the real question you have to answer in your heart is, will I surrender to build his kingdom? Or will I fight it to protect mine? Just take couple of seconds to reflect on that. God, I thank you for the testimony of these saints that built your kingdom. That when this great persecution came and they were dragging people out of homes and throwing women in jail and tearing apart families and leaving people in horrible pain, that those believers didn't just fight you and resist you and blame you, but recognize that through many trials, many, many perils, through much persecution, we inherit the kingdom. And we enter it, God. So Lord, help us now to, to surrender our kingdoms for yours, to be committed to making your name known, God, for those 69,000 people out there that you have left us here so that we could bring the message that could deliver them from the bondage of sin and death. So, Lord, as you reposition us to do that, may we humbly submit. For those that are resisting it and fighting it, God, would your spirit break them down, cause them to say, I'm all in, man, I'm all in. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.